Hey there, welcome to Sans Mantra Studio. My name's Mark Hughes. I'm a producer, guitarist, songwriter and performer living in Melbourne's inner north. And this is the first episode of the Sans Mantra Studio podcast, wherein I'll be talking about my influences, what I've been up to, upcoming releases and everything to do with my musical world, basically, for anyone that's interested. And um, I guess to kick off this first episode, um, I'd like to talk about my debut single, which is called The Silent Crowd and is out now on all streaming platforms, including YouTube and also Bandcamp if you feel like uh, supporting independent artists there. Um, so The Silent Crowd is a song that I wrote quite a long time ago. And I should explain, I suppose, that um, it's from, the song is from an album that I'm planning to put out next year. It'll be an 11 track album. And um, it's a bunch of songs that I've been sitting on for a long time. Um, they've been on my hard drive for quite a while. And I suppose to answer the question, why is that, that they've been sitting there for so long? Um, I, I suppose I need to go back in the past a little bit and explain that um, I have a previous release under a different name, which is um, a project that I had um, 2003 called Bitchy Boy. And at the time I planned to release an album under that name with that band. And we were a band, we were playing around Melbourne. Um, and um, in the end, I think, I suppose my ambition kind of got the better of me because I was trying to put together an album um, of great scope and I'm really into music that is far-reaching. I, I like music, I like ambitious music. I like music that kind of has a lot of parts. I like music that you step into as a different world, basically. And music, I like music as escapism. I'm really into escapism, ultimately, I think. I enjoy things like Lord of the Rings. I enjoy, um, you know, I like the Marvel movies. Um, as a kid, I, I grew up drew, drawing comic books, basically. I, I, I would make up my own comic strips. I was a big drawer as a kid. Um, and that, that was kind of my thing, you know, you know, Mark's the kid that draws. And so I, I, I was an only child for eight years until my brother came along. And uh, I, I drew to amuse myself. And, um, so heavily into escapism, and when I was a kid too, I, my, the first record I got was, I'm gonna age, age myself here or date myself here. Um, the first record I ever got was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. And um, the story with that was that uh, when I was really little, when I was about three or four, I used to take out my parents' copy of Sgt. Pepper's and take it out, it was vinyl of course, and I'd take it out, we had a, a smooth parquetry floor, and I'd take the record and I would skid it along the parquetry, because that was a great game of course, and uh, then when I got a little bit older, a few years older, maybe five or six, 
um, I figured out how to use the turntable and of course I'd completely scratched this this copy of Sgt Pepper. So there was a big gap between, I can't remember which tracks on side two, there was a big gap of, that was missing of, of, you know, probably 10 minutes or so. So when I was a little bit older, my parents got me my own copy of Sgt Pepper and uh, the day that I put that on and I heard the missing bits on side two, oh, what a glorious feeling that was. That was just heaven. So, um, but I loved Sgt Pepper because it was an album that I could disappear into and escape into. It was, a, it, was a, it was another world. It wasn't like pop songs or music that I heard elsewhere. It had all these sound effects. It had a colourful album cover. Um, it, it had, you know, it had all these elements to, to basically... I guess what you'd call now, you'd call it world building, I suppose. Um, but I, I, I loved disappearing into that world. And I think my favourite music still is, is music that I can escape into, like a good movie or a good book. So when I was putting together my, what was going to be an album with this band Bitchy Boy years ago, um, it had strings, it had guitar parts, it had keyboard parts, harmonies. It was the full enchilada, and that's how I wanted it to be. And um, I had a lot of trouble with engineers, um, with one in particular. Um, but, you know, finding the right studio, um, I eventually landed with uh, a, a man named Nigel Derricks in a studio called Bakehouse Studios. And uh, Nigel helped me put together the EP that became the Bitchy Boy Time Thief EP, as it was called. And so by that stage, I'd spent so much time and energy and money um, that I decided, and I did have a live band happening at the same time. We were gigging around Melbourne, um, as I've said, and uh, I decided to make it an EP. So I thought I'll leave off all the hard tracks with all the strings and everything, everything that's hard to reproduce on the stage um, because we were basically a three-piece band as well, so it was even harder. And um, I decided to just keep it to some of the tracks that were a bit bit leaner and a bit funkier and, you know, I felt would go over live a bit better. And uh, I made it an EP, so... Um, so I had all these other tracks and that, that came out, we did some good shows. We did a show at Manchester Lane at the time, as it was called in the city in Flinders Lane in Melbourne CBD. Um, we actually were the band that debuted when they refurbished the whole venue and kicked it off with um, our uh, album launch, basically, EP launch, I should say. And that was huge, there were, there were people lined up around the corner to get in. Now, I'm not saying they were all there to see us, but a big part of them were. And um, whether they were or not, it was a huge night. It was so exciting. Um, and that was just fantastic. So we did that. Um, we also played at the corner. Um, and we did some really great shows. But eventually, it just kind of tapered off. It, it didn't do what I wanted it to do. And, you know, that it was, it was hard getting... I suppose it's always hard in Melbourne. I mean, we don't have the population in Australia to support um, anything but the most sort of, I guess, basic level of, of, you know, I don't want to say lowest common denominator, but the most sort of, sort of 
popular music in a sense, you know. There, we do have all these different, um, we've, we've got this amazing creative community in, in Australia, in Melbourne, and in the music community specifically. But uh, if we were in America with the, the, you know, the population that they've got there, I mean, 5% of their population is a lot different to 5% of the Australian population. So I hope you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's, unless you're really, really, unless you're John Farnham or Jimmy Barnes or someone like that, you're not gonna kind of, you're gonna find it very hard to find an audience that's gonna sustain you financially in Melbourne, in Australia. So um, that's basically what happened to us, I think. Um, it was hard to get gigs that were paying well enough. It was my project, even though I was playing with friends who were very supportive, but these are friends, these are professional musicians that were playing in, in corporate gigs, in other bands, in paying gigs, weddings, that sort of thing. That's how musicians in, in Melbourne make a living. Um, so, you know, in a sense, I'm competing with paid gigs. Uh, as a band leader, I'm competing with paid gigs uh, from, from weddings, you know, for some of my, my band members. So it was very hard for me to do that without, uh, you know, I was totally independent as well. There was no record company backing. Um, and I'm not complaining at all. It's just this, this is what it was. So it was hard to find gigs that paid well enough to support the band in the way that I'd, I would have liked it to have been supported. Um, despite all the support we had from, you know, followers at the time. Anyway, um, what this meant was that uh, the EP that was released was uh, a seven-track EP, and um, it was uh, just the, the the tunes that I thought would work live, as I said before. So all the tracks that had strings on it or brass, that sort of thing, um, they were kind of left. They were just left on the hard drive. They were sort of put in the too hard basket. So this song that I've just released under uh, my new project name, Sans Mantra, um, is one of the songs that has strings on it. Now, a few people have asked since I've released it, um, are they real strings? People are very curious to know. And um, yes, they are real strings. It was a string quartet that I hired at the time. It was a string quartet that was recommended to me by the a studio engineer that I was working with at the time, a, a, a guy named Andy Shanahan. And uh, this string quartet um, came to the studio um, that we were working in, which was a place called Soundhouse Studios, which no longer exists actually. And this particular studio was actually purpose built to record um, strings. So it was amazing. There, there were mirrored um, surfaces, it was acoustically designed to capture the sound of a string quartet. It was incredible. And Andy was e extremely um, adept at uh, recording string quartets as well. Like he really knew what he was doing, you know, in terms of mic placement um, and everything that goes into capturing that sound. So they were real strings and I arranged them. I basically put together melodies that I liked around the song and then I harmonized them. I tried to um, basically complement the melody in the song that I wrote, knowing the melody that was going to be there when I sang it. And um, 
and that's how it came to be. So um, interesting um, session with the string quartet. I won't mention their names, but um, personally, but uh, I would say that uh, probably three quarters of them were, were lovely. They were really good, and probably about fifty percent of them were really good players. Looking back, I do remember the viola player. I remember making a small talk with the viola player because um, I'm sitting in there with them, directing them, and just checking that you know everything's going to plan as I've as I've kind of you know, arranged it. And I remember saying to the viola player, um, so you're just making small talk, you know, just trying to be friendly, basically. And I said to him, um, so you guys, you know, you do this a lot, you play together a lot, do you? Um, and I got this very curt, brusque response um, where he said, um, we are professionals, you know. And I'll never forget that because this particular player went on to play the most out of tune out of all of them. And we did have to run the strings through auto-tune in the computer at the time, which was very difficult because back then you didn't have what's known as polyphonic auto-tune. Now we have software that can actually go into, and if you look on YouTube, you've probably seen um, things like uh, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody turned into a minor key, for instance, because what they can do now is they can go into a song, a recording, pick out the different individual notes that make up the harmony and change them individually, which is completely mind-bending. I have no idea how they do it, but they can do it. Back then, we didn't have it, or at least the technology wasn't as accessible as it is now. So we were a bit sort of limited in terms of what we could do. But even then, Andy, the engineer, ran the uh, string quartet through the auto-tune a couple of times because they were quite out of tune in spots. And, uh, and that's not being bitchy, that's just stating a fact. Um, I think it's fair to say that if you're coming from the rock world or the pop world and you get some classically trained musicians in, you're going to get a little bit of condescension. Um, that's all I'll say on that. Despite the fact that we've got, you know, brilliant minds like Prince, Paul McCartney, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, throw your own names in there in the pop world, um, people who really, you know, are up there with uh, classical um geniuses like Mozart and Beethoven, in my opinion. So anyway, um, the string quartet session was illuminating. It was educational for me. Also very exciting. I do remember um, the 50% the that were, were really good players. They were actually the violinists. They were lovely. And uh, I remember them turning to me at one point and saying at the end, well, we'll look forward to hearing this on the radio. So... That was a lovely thing for them to say. Um, but I guess to, to wrap that little story up, um, these sessions, these songs sat on my hard drive after my band Bitchy Boy folded at the time. And then I became a dad. And uh, parenthood, if you don't have any children, then 
it's probably hard to relate, but parenthood tends to take up a lot of your time and energy. And that's what happened to me. I became a stay-at-home dad. Um, I got into working from home, doing producing for other artists and doing a bit of soundtrack work as well. And all the time, these songs were sitting on my hard drive, um, kind of really annoying me in the end. And um, that kind of in a roundabout way leads me to here in the year 2021 and this song, The Silent Crowd. So, um, yeah, real strings on The Silent Crowd, a string quartet. Um, and this song, like I said, it's, it's, it's an old song for me. I did write it quite a while ago. Um, some people have expressed interest in knowing what the inspiration was for it. Um, now, I think um, this song's kind of unique in a sense because I can remember exactly when it popped into my mind. Some of my songs I can't remember at all. They just kind of appear one day and then, you know, they annoy you until you kind of add to them and you think, well, I, you know. I mean, I, I always use the iPhone app now. I use the voice memo app. And if I get even anything that's interesting, I put it down on the voice memo which basically means I've got like 700 voice memos, which I haven't gone back to because the really exciting ideas you act on straight away. But this one in particular, this was before iPhones and uh, I was actually in Perth at a friend's place and I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And I was talking to my parents, I think, and I can't remember exactly what I wanted them to do. I was talking to my mum and um, I think she'd promised that she'd do something for me or I'd asked her to do something for me. She hadn't done it. And I kind of put the phone down, you know, in a stink. And uh, my friend whose place I was staying at said, oh, did somebody let you down? And bang, that melody of the song, did somebody let you down? It just popped into my head. And um, what happened then was I took that away and I remembered, I, th I think even back then, before iPhones, I had a dictaphone of some sort. So I probably sang it into the dictaphone. But um, what I would have done then is come back and worked it out. So... Did somebody let you down? When you fell, they weren't around Shed a tear without a sound Did somebody let you down? So I had all that. I think that came fairly quickly. Um, and at the time when I wrote it, um, I really felt like that. I felt quite isolated. Um, I felt like, um, you know, people, people around me were letting me down. I found it hard to find real friends. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it's all perception because I think perception is everything really in life. Um, but that's certainly how I perceived my, my reality to be at the time. Um, but one thing that I'm really proud about with this song is, and one thing that I, I kind of lean on as a songwriter is, I like taking a melody 
um, you'll notice these songs, they're all what we call diatonic songs. Sorry, chords, I mean. So these are all chords that kind of exist naturally in C minor. Um, you know, there's no surprises to your ear there. There's no weird sort of, you know, um, chord changes or sounds. But what I like to do is take a melody and then kind of reharmonize it. So what I did was I took the melody. So did somebody let you down this bit? And I took it and I went, so dry your eyes and try again. And I reharmonized it with that, that chord B flat minor. So I'm in C minor and I go down to B flat minor there, which suddenly we've modulated to a different key. And then I go up to uh, D flat and then I go back to C minor. So there's a brief modulation there, which I'm quite proud of. And it's based on the melody. So I'm just, you know. So dry your eyes and try again. Find someone who could fall friend. And it's based on the melody and common chord tones. What other chords can I use there that might sound nice? I like that sort of thing. That's what, that's what attracts me to writing songs. That's what attracts me to other music. Um, you know, everyone knows every breath you take. I'm doing it in C. I, I can't remember what, what key it's in. C to A minor. Actually, I'll do it in G. Every breath you take. G to E minor, every breath, every move you make. Oh, I can't remember the words. <laughs> then C, every breath you take, every move you make, I'll be watching you. Every single day. Then E minor. Quite a common chord progression. Then to D. Um, and then when he finishes a sting, that is. When he, Sorry, I'm, I'm <laughs> beating around the bush getting to the point here. But there's a point to all of this, so I'm going. Remove you, may. Every move you make. Every step you then to D, then to E minor. Then he modulates to E flat. Since you've gone, I've been lost without a trace. Then to F. Look around, but it's you I can't replace. That's a nice little modulation in there, and that really is quite. I don't want to say the word special, but that's really nice. It's not, he's gone somewhere different with that, and that's, I really admire Sting's songwriting for that. So. That's something I aspire to in my own, own writing, is to put quirky chord changes in. I hate the word quirky. I don't know why I used that just then. Unusual chord changes. So. 
did somebody let you down? So dry your eyes and try again. You'd never think it was going to go there if you were just listening to the chords. Surrender all to the silent crown. Did somebody let you down? So, yeah, that's the essence of that song, really. And I think songwriting really is a matter of, you really only write kind of, I don't know, two thirds of a song and the rest is arrangement, really, in my opinion. You know, it's just putting it together in an interesting way, I think. Um, so that's how I wrote that song. And um, I'm really blown away by the response that I've had online for it. It's just been amazing. Some other questions that um, I've had about the project have been about the name. Uh, so Sans Mantra is basically, I, I really like a band name. I think it's much more, people have said, you know, why don't you just call yourself Mark Hughes or the Mark Hughes Band? To me, that's really boring. I'm not knocking anyone that decides to go out by their own name. But for me personally, it's way more interesting to have a band name um, or an artist name, whatever, you know, whichever one it is. Basically because I'm into escapism. I like this whole idea of, you know, Sans Mantra being a world. Um, and I'm aware of the irony of this podcast probably doing a lot to, um, you know, undermine that. But, you know, it's the year 2021. That's the era we live in. Um, but... Um, I remember the first time I heard uh, Pink Floyd or, you know, the, the, the amount of time I, I spent listening to Dark Side of the Moon as a, as a kid without having any idea who was singing, um, what they looked like. I didn't discover that till years later and I'm sure that it enhanced my enjoyment of the music because my imagination filled out who they were. Um, so that's just me. I like escapism. I like disappearing into a world. And that's why I've picked a band name instead of my name. And Sans Mantra happened to be a name that wasn't taken, um, that I liked the sound of. In fact, it was taken in the end, S-A-N-S, -S, with the correct spelling of it, believe it or not. So I changed it to a Z, and that's not taken. So thank God. Um, but, um, I like to think of sans mantra as meaning, sans meaning, you know, without, and mantra, um, meaning in the ancient Sanskrit definition of it, it means thought. So I interpret that to be without thought, meaning relying on the subconscious. And that's what I, um, that's where I think the gold is, I think, in songwriting, in any art form, really. It's, it's from the subconscious. Um, and I think that uh, any movie that you enjoy, any uh, music or anything like that, it's all come from that place where everything is, it's already finished. It's just waiting for you to draw on it. And we just have to find that way of tapping into our subconscious to bring it out into this, uh, into this reality. Um, so that's, that's why I chose Sans Mantra. I guess I, I really hope that the artwork that I've done reflects the impression that I'm trying to make with um, the whole project, you know, with Sans Mantra, with the music, with the whole 
you know, vibe, the whole Marbo of it. Uh, yeah, so um, the artwork is something interesting. For me, as I've mentioned, I used to draw as a kid, but then I stopped when I got into music, when I got the music bug. And uh, last year, 2020, when the pandemic came upon us, um, I lost all my gigs. And uh, suddenly I had all this spare time on my hands. So um, I'd been wanting to get back into drawing for a couple of years. I actually bought a sketchbook a couple of years prior and I started a sketch in it, but I never got back to it because on a Friday or a Saturday afternoon, when it hits sort of, you know, four or five o'clock, I'm packing up the car and heading out to a gig. I do a lot of work as a solo acoustic, a solo acoustic artist playing covers, as a lot of musicians do. And um, so that was my routine for a Friday or a Saturday Arvo. But uh, of course, with COVID, I was stuck at home. So suddenly I had this extra time. I thought, well, I'll get into drawing. And um, that's where the artwork for the, you know, the banners that you'll see on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, that's where that came from. Suddenly I had a whole new sort of outlet for my creative impulses. And um, I absolutely loved it. I loved getting back into drawing. I think it's funny with music. I think a lot of musicians actually, they may not realise it, but they actually have lost the love of music, the love of performing. Um, they, they, they still go through the motions of listening to music and everything. They still, you know, think that they're still plugged in, but they're not, you know. I think a lot of musicians become quite jaded. And... Um, for me, that was certainly the case, you know, a few years ago, um, I do a lot of work as a solo acoustic musician, like I said, um, playing covers. Um, it's an easy way to make a lot of money, you know, just by yourself if you can do it. Um, and for me, when I became um, a stay-at-home dad, uh, it was a good way for me, along with a duo that I worked in with a, with a, a good friend of mine named Michelle, um, you know, um, it was a good way for me to keep my hand in, I guess, you know, and still be be earning money. So, you know, if I left the house and my, my wife had to look after our son, then I was going out to earn some money. So it wasn't like I was going out just to, you know, have a few drinks and play a few tunes in, the, you know, the local coffee house or whatever it was, coffee house, the local cafe. Uh, so... Um, so yeah, I, I, that became, you know, I guess one of my jobs um, as a musician because, you know, musicians do have to um, have a few different feathers in their hat, so to speak. And that was a large one for me in my hat. And uh, like I say, when uh, COVID came around, that kind of gave me a lot of spare time that I would have been out at gigs otherwise. So I started drawing again. And I actually think with maturity as an adult, um, I learnt to actually bring my drawing to a better place or, a, you know, a higher standard than I'd ever sort of reached as a kid because I'd always got to a point with my drawing where it, if it got hard, I'd just stop, you know, and I'd always just let my talent carry me. So to whatever point that was and then... You know, when it got too hard, I just stopped. So um, I think as a musician, if you really want to get to a point, if you've got a vision for where you want your playing 
or your musicianship or your your you know your artistry as a as a songwriter or a, a composer whatever whatever it is if you've got a vision for where you want that to be then you do have to break through some barriers um, and you do have to realize at a certain point well I'm going to have to actually apply a lot of work because there's a bit of a correlation between music and sport um, in that it's a physical thing and if you want to be able to move your fingers in a certain way you're going to have to actually train like a like an athlete so I had all that behind me as an adult because I've spent a lot of time practicing music of practicing my instrument um, and I was able to apply that to my drawing and go, okay, well, I can see that this is going to take more than just one go. This is going to take a few nights of, of trying this again and again and again to get this portrait of Stevie Wonder or whoever it was at the time to get that portrait right. So I did that and I achieved better results than I'd ever achieved before, you know, in my younger years, in my opinion. And uh, that was such a buzz to me to be able to do that. So I was able to apply that to the artwork for my Sans Mantra banners on social media. And at the same time, I came across this fantastic guy named Vinod, this Indian man in um, Hyderabad in southern India. And I found him on his YouTube channel and I really liked, he had all these computer animation loops and I really liked them and I thought maybe I could use one of them for one of my music clips coming up you know so I contacted him and I said oh um, I, I'm, I'm interested in buying you know one of your clips or one or more of your clips he had them for sale and I thought I'll figure I'll find out if he does commission work as well so I said do you do you know animation on commission he said yes absolutely he said you know shoot me a, a message on Instagram and he sent me his um, Instagram address and I kind of forgot about it and um, I went and liked his Instagram account um, but then I think he liked one of my posts and then he reminded me and um, I got in touch with him and by that point um, I needed help putting together my artwork in Photoshop and Illustrator and all that jazz. Uh, I'm all over Pro Tools and even Premiere in, you know, video making, that sort of thing. I, I love doing that. And I'd love to be able to learn, to, I'd love to be able to know how to use Photoshop and Illustrator and After Effects, but they just escape me. It's just not, a, it just does, does not make any sense to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I've got some clues, you know, over the last year or so. Um, I actually bought these courses, um, these Spanish courses, Domestica. They're really great courses, but they're in Spanish. So they do have subtitles, but um, you're there watching the subtitles and then you're trying to, you know, figure out how to do that in your Photoshop software and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I've got a bit to learn in that area. Anyway, I said to this this guy, Vinod, I said, do you, you know, are you able to help me with Photoshop and everything? He said, yeah, absolutely. So um, this has turned into this, this fantastic working relationship with this guy, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away in India. And uh, he's helped put together the layout for things for me. He's helped turn the Sans Mantra logo into a, a schmick, 
you know, um, symmetrical computer-generated logo. I gave him my hand-drawn logo, and he he turned it into a you know what it is now in Illustrator, and he's done all these different things. So um, I'm so grateful to have met him. But uh, that's where the art. That's the story of the artwork. Um, so I do the artwork, and then I send it to him, and uh, he sends it back to me. Um, you know, all schmick and perfect. Um, but that's probably enough for this episode. I've got stacks more to talk about in the future. Um, I do plan to do this weekly. Um, this will be the first one of, I think, a six-episode season. So um, there'll be five more of these. Um, hopefully they'll be a bit more interesting than this one. If you didn't find it that interesting. If you did, cool. Um, I did want to mention how important it is as a creative artist to to get support from people. Um, I've had some incredible support since I released my single, The Silent Crowd. Um, I've had people sharing it. I've had some beautiful messages from people. In fact, I teach guitar as well, and I got a text just yesterday uh, from one of my students saying, I thought you were a Pinot man. And I wrote back to him, and I said, I'm not really sure what you're on about, but yeah, I, yes, I like Pinot. He said, check your front doorstep. So I went and checked my front doorstep. There's a bottle of Pinot there with a handwritten note saying, congrats on the single, mate. Hopefully see you for a lesson soon, Ben. And, I mean, that just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. But what I want to say is you can never share... Um, posts or songs you can never like share or subscribe enough you know if you like what i'm doing please send it to your friends you know it, it's free it doesn't cost anything and it absolutely means the world to us artists who are producing it because it really is very difficult to cut through the algorithms of facebook and instagram etc these days you know and there are so many people doing it so if you really find someone that you like and if you really like my stuff then please tell everyone you know about it get them to subscribe get them to subscribe to my youtube channel um, get them to like it on spotify to add it to their library become a follower um, it doesn't cost anything but perhaps just a few minutes of your time and it really means the world to us, us musicians who are making it. So please, like, share, subscribe. And um, there will be another podcast next week. Um, hope to see you then. See you then, guys.